Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Sean. So I did something <laughs> this week that I, I don't normally do anymore. And when I did it, I remembered why I no longer do this thing. I read the news. I read the news. And here are just a, a few headlines. Uh, 50 drones released by the, the Russians. 56 people die in Pakistan in a suicide bombing. Um, terrible, devastating flooding in Libya. This world's messed up. We're, we're pretty messed up. And how did, how did this happen? How did we get here? Why are, why are we so messed up? And is there, is there a good explanation? And, and more than that, is, is there hope for us? Well, I think there is. In the Bible, the passage that we're looking at this morning gives both. Both a great explanation as to why we are so messed up. It also gives us hope. And so what I want you to see here is this morning from our passage is that we have been ruined by sin. We've been ruined by sin. And yet, if that's all that we see in this passage, we're, we're not seeing the passage. Because yes, the passage talks about the fall. Yes, it talks about being ruined by sin. But that is not the dominant accent in this chapter. 
I mean, by far and away, there is a, there's a far greater message of hope, and that is we're ruined by sin, but, praise God, we have been recovered by grace. And we're going to see that this morning. And we'll do it by taking two passes, two sweeps through Genesis chapter 3. Are you ready? One, ruined by sin. If you were here last week, or even if you weren't, uh, last week we looked at chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, we're we're zooming in on day 6, where God makes man and woman. And he also says to them, though we didn't look at this too much, he said, look, you can eat from all these trees in this garden, but there is just one tree, just one tree, that you're not allowed to eat. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was a test. A test. A way for these people, these human beings, to prove their love to God. And the chapter ends this way. And they were both naked and unashamed. And now comes chapter 3. And it says, the serpent, the serpent, was more crafty than all the wild animals that God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle? Now, I'm not sure where you're all at this morning, but some of you might be thinking to yourself, really? <laughs> a talking snake? <laughs> I mean, really, if you think about it, it just kind of sounds a little ridiculous, a talking snake. You know, it does, it does sound a little bit like a fairy tale. I mean, if you step back from it, right? A talking snake, right? It, do, it does sound a little bit like Harry Potter, right? It does. But let me ask you this. If you were going to ruin the world, how would you do it? <laughs> no, really. It, I mean, what would it, what would it take for you to ruin the world? I, I want to suggest that, well, one, you have to be pretty smart. Two, you have to be incredibly crafty. And three, it would help if you're completely evil. Okay? Do you know anyone like that? I I love the fact that Moses, the author, the human author of this story, has he's he's covered up the true identity of of the serpent. It's just it's a it's a just a stroke of literary genius. Of course. He doesn't reveal the true identity of the snake. I love that. And I also love in the New Testament, uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, I think it is, where it just totally exposes the true identity of the serpent. You know, that dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan. So there it is. There's a snake behind the snake. Yes, the snake is speaking, but really it's Satan. And Satan says, get this, he says to the woman, did God really say that you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden? That's a crafty question. Why? Because God didn't actually say you cannot eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Okay, he did, but that's not all he said. What God actually said was, you are free to eat from all the trees that are in the midst of the garden, or in the garden. But the one, the one tree, there's one tree in the midst of the garden that's off limits. Just one. But go ahead, have fun, eat from all the other trees. 
But you see what he does? He just he narrows the thing down to its this restriction. Why? Because he wants Eve to start doubting God's goodness. Honestly, why? Why would God do that? Why would He put one of the one tree off limits? What's going on there? Hmm. And we know that she's beginning to entertain the fact that God might not be that good, because she says, "Yes, God said." that we are free to eat from all the trees in the garden, but there's one tree in the middle that we may not eat of. We can't even touch it or we will die. And there's so much in that that's so good, but there's there's something wrong there. Because God never said to her or to Adam, don't touch the tree. He said, don't eat it. But here she says, we can't even touch it. And so she's exaggerating the restriction, don't you see, that's being put on the prohibition. And what that seems to indicate is that she's already beginning to think that this, hey, this is not fair. Why would God withhold this tree from us, really? And then comes the, the one-two knockout punch. Satan says, he says to her, you will surely not die because God knows on the day that you eat of this tree, from this tree, your eyes will be open and you will become like God, knowing good from evil. And there it is. He's not good. It's an empty threat. He's holding out on you. He's holding back from you. He knows that God's got stuff. He knows it. That knowledge that you could have, he doesn't want to share it with you. He's not good. Hmm. And you know what? It's, it's the same temptation that comes to us today. It really is. God has put this in, uh, in an amazing world where we are free to do so much and enjoy so much. And like there are just like a few things that he says, those aren't for you. Those aren't for you. And we're like, how can you be good? How, how can you be good if that thing is off limits for me? Really? I can't help, but when I, when I read this story, when I think about it, I, I think about one of my kids. I won't mention which kid. It was a long time ago. But mom was in the kitchen. She was prepping dinner, uh, red peppers. I think she was cutting. And one of my daughters said, hey, mom, <laughs> can I have a red pepper? And mom said, no. Why? Because they're for dinner. And she said, mom, I'm not going to say you're an idiot. I'm not going to say you're an idiot. It was crafty. Because she felt like mom was being mean just because she couldn't have their one red pepper. It is the story of our lives. God has put us in this amazing world, said just go have fun, enjoy it. But there are a few things that are not for you. Just a few. A way of testing your love for me. Do you really love me for who I am or just for the things I give? It's a test. But it's construed as God not being good. He's holding back something from you. Don't you see that? Eve and Adam, well, they fall. Eve takes the apple. Adam takes the apple. Adam was, it says, with her. I don't know what he was doing the whole time. I mean, I don't know what he was doing. He should have, he should have taken, he, he said, hey, we should probably just leave. We should probably just leave. And if the snake followed them, he probably should have just taken a stick and beaten that thing to death. Honestly, 
Maybe, yeah. Yeah. But they didn't. And they ate, and their eyes were opened, and and, and they saw that they were naked. And for the first time, they felt shame. One minute, they were naked and unashamed, and the next minute, they realized that they are naked and they're shamed. I think it's here that I just got to point out something important. A distinction between guilt and shame. It's important. I think sometimes, a lot of times, we confuse those two things. We make them interchangeable. They're not. Guilt and shame are different. Guilt has to do with your relationship or your standing to the law. If you break the law, you do what is wrong. Shame, on the other hand, says this. You're unacceptable because of something that you've done, something that was done to you, or something that's associated with you. Okay? Now, we don't often think that shame's a big problem. Now, don't put your hand up, but for how many of you do you think that shame is a big problem? Okay. It is the story of the Bible. Shame is everywhere in the Bible. So is its recovery. But it's everywhere. And it's everywhere. It's in all of us. All of you this morning are carrying shame. You may not identify it quite as shame. I mean, shame doesn't say, hi, I'm here, you know? But if I were to ask you this question, and it's important because we're going somewhere, hopeful, answer the question. I am unacceptable because I am dot, dot, dot. I'm unacceptable because I am dot, dot, dot. How do you fill in those dots for yourself? I'm bad. I'm dirty. I'm ugly. I'm weak. I'm stupid. If you actually get deep down enough, you you realize kind of what is that core thing that's sort of driving your life, the thing that you believe, the thing that um, Brene Brown, the TED Talk, just said that it is, you know, it's that terrible feeling, terrible experience of believing that we have screwed up and we are not worthy of love. It's everywhere. It's in our hearts. We operate out of that belief. Shame is not some kind of religious construct that's been foist upon us. You know, people who aren't even religious don't believe that. The thing about shame is that we, we just, we, we, we just, we run for cover, don't we? We gotta cover it up. <laughs> I mean, shame doesn't like to, like, you know, be in the public. Shame just, it hides. And Adam and Eve hid. They hid by creating something to cover their bodies. They found some fig leaves, and they, they covered themselves up. I thought about that this week. I spent a lot of time thinking about those fig leaves. And I, like, wonder what they did. How did they do that? Why did they do it? And it occurred to me that they probably grabbed fig leaves because they were the most convenient thing. They were 
the thing that they thought would do the trick. I mean, they haven't, they hadn't created fabric at that point, so I guess that will do. They hadn't created threads, so they probably used long grass and they stitched the stuff together. And then I thought, well, how comfortable was that, right? Probably not. And I wonder how durable it was. I mean, just one wrong turn rip, right? I mean, I just kind of useless, you know? And I know, I know I spent all, maybe too much time <laughs> thinking about that this week, but you know what? I, maybe I didn't. Maybe I didn't. Because it, it seems to me, it seems to me that we human beings even since that day, have been in the business of making fig leaves and coverings for ourselves. You know, obviously not with fig leaves, but a kind, metaphorically. I mean, think about it. Think of the way that we try and cover our shame. You know, I'm thinking about a few things. Think about hiding secrets. Hiding secrets that you think nobody will know. Uh... I'm thinking about bragging. I'm more than you think. Maybe perfectionism. What are the ways? What are the ways? What are the ways that we cover up our shame? We try, we try and keep it from being seen. You know? You know, this is what I know about shame. Shame loves to hide, but when it's, when it's exposed, it goes from moving away from people and it, it goes towards, well, against people. I mean, take a look at this. So God comes walking to them in the garden, okay? He comes walking to the garden in the cool of the day. I guess it was a regular occurrence. I don't know, but he comes walking into the garden. And, and they hear him. And suddenly the fig leaves that, you know, they wrapped around themselves were no longer suitable. They just didn't do the trick. And so they bolt. They go into the trees. They hide in the trees. And God says to them, where are you? Where are you? To Adam, where are you? And Adam says, well, we heard you walking in the garden. We were afraid because we were naked. God says, who told you you were naked? Who told you? Did you eat from the tree that I said do not eat from? Did you eat from that? And now it's all exposed. And we do, here's what we do, friends. When, when things get exposed, we start the blaming game, right? We're now moving against people. How many of you are blamers this morning? How many hands up? If you're a blamer, see, no, you're all lying. You're all, look, you're all blamers. We're all of us blamers. Here's what we do. <clears throat> here's what they did. Eve, now just listen to the first thing that comes out of her mouth. Eve. No, it's, it's Adam, I'm sorry. The first thing that came out of Adam's mouth was the woman. The woman. The woman that you put in the garden, she gave it to me and I ate. So the problem here is not me. The problem is the woman. But ultimately it's you, God, because you put her in the garden. If you had never put her in the garden, I would never have been in this situation. The woman doesn't do any better. The first words that come out of her mouth, the first word is what? The serpent. Not me, it's the serpent. The serpent deceived me, beguiled me, and that's why I ate. 
The only one who doesn't say anything is the serpent, right? Because he knows. We play this blame game. When our shame is exposed, we have this way of going on the attack. We're trying to get the spotlight off of ourselves, right? Don't, don't look at me here. Don't look at this. Don't look at my shame. Look over there. And so the spotlight shifts to somebody else, and we do this all the time. We do. But now comes the sentence. Satan said, no problem. You're not going to die, but here's the sentence. And God says to the serpent, I'm going to cast you onto the ground, and you're going to eat dust all the days of your life. Of course, he's talking to more than the serpent. He's talking to Satan. There will be defeat. Okay? And then he says to the woman, to the woman, from now on, you're going to have pain in childbirth. Okay? Now listen, I've experienced pain in my life. I broke my leg in a rugby match in high school. I dislocated my vertebrae cycling in northern Ontario. I thought my mind was going to explode when I had a stroke. But nothing, no pain that I've experienced compares to what I have seen in the delivery room five times when I see my wife give birth to our children. Like it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. The guy... You're going to work, but it's not going to be easy. And you're going to like be working by the sweat of your brow, and it's not going to be what you want to be. Thorns and thistles are going to come up, and then you're going to die. Go back down to the earth for which you came. And it's like, this is a disaster. But it does explain why things are so messed up. Now, you might say that's a bit harsh. Why would God do that? But look at Romans 8 says this. That it was mercy that God did this. God, in his mercy, subjected this world to frustration so that we would not hope in this world, but hope in him. Listen, as Mark Buchanan says, God has rigged this world for disappointment. This world will only break your heart. It's true. If we're looking for our hope squarely in this world, we're not going to find it here. God subjected this world to futility so that in hope we might turn to God. Now listen, here we begin to see grace beginning to dawn. And like I said, this story is a lot, it's about a lot more than the fall. A lot more. It's about a recovery, a recovering in grace. It is. Let's go back to the story a little more quickly this time. Because the amazing thing is that Satan enters the garden to destroy, but now we see God entering that same garden to save with his grace and his love. And the first question he asks is, where are you? Here is the beginning of grace. He totally knows where they are. He knows that. He knows it. So why is he asking? He's asking not for his benefit, but for the benefit of his children, where are you? It is not a voice of judgment. It's a voice of brokenheartedness and longing and yearning. Where are you? It's the kind of question that you ask somebody to get them thinking, yeah, where am I? How did I get here? 
How did it come to this? And I, I tell you, it's the same question he, he asks still today. And maybe he's asking you that question this morning. Where are you? Maybe you've been hiding your entire life. Maybe you've been hiding not just from other people, but from God himself. And maybe you've been ducking into the trees or wearing that fig leaf because you just can't conceive of what it would mean for you to come out and and be naked before a holy, a piercingly holy God with all of your shame. Maybe you're here this morning and you are, you are a child of God. But you still find yourself hiding. And we do. We all of us do. And then God wants to ask the same question to you this morning. Where are you? And can you hear the voice of God coming to you? Not against you. But to you and for you in the garden the beginning of grace, but it continues. Because he says to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity, which means war, between your offspring and the offspring of the woman. Now let's get technical for a moment and and try not to tune me out because this may sound boring, but it's important. Offspring is what you call a collective noun. A collective noun is a very flexible noun. It can refer to the plural or to the singular, okay? I think it does in both cases here in our passage. He's saying that there will be two families that emerge. Two families that will coexist in this world. The offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent or the devil. And there will be a terrible battle between these two families. But there will be a battle. And yet if you look down, it says, he. And now it goes to the singular, to a person. One of the offspring of the woman will emerge. A son will be born. And this son will crush the head of the devil, a fatal wound. In the process, his heel will be bruised, not fatal, but painful. This is what theologians call the proto Evangelion, the first glimpse of the gospel, the first glimpse of a savior who would come to this world, born of a woman, of the woman, and who would come and who would enter into a battle and a war against the evil one, would crush him, but in the process be hurt and wounded, but not die, but live. Colossians chapter 5, 2 verse 15 says that Jesus Christ disarmed the powers of darkness, making a public display of them, triumphing over them on the cross for you. And then God does something here in our story, which is astounding. He removes their fig leaves, I believe, and he kills an animal. He sheds the blood of an innocent animal, the first 
recorded instance of animal death in the Bible. And God takes their hides and God stitches those hides and he covers them. He covers his creatures. And what God was saying then and what he still says now, you need a covering for your guilt and your shame. You can't create that covering for yourself. Your fig leaves will never take away your guilt. They will never remove your shame. You have to let me undress you, and you have to let me cover you. But cover you with the blood of my son, who was put to shame on that cross, who bore your guilt. You see, when you're a Christian, when you become a Christian, you enter under that covering and you're covered. And God does not see your guilt. He doesn't see your shame in the sense where he's judging you and rejecting you. Now he accepts you just as you are in Christ. He accepts you. He loves you just as you are in Christ. And I think that makes a big difference, a big difference. Some of you this morning, this morning are, are not Christians. That's, listen, that's, that's okay. You are where you are. And I know that you think this story is a myth. And I would just say this to you. It is. It's a myth. But it is the true myth. That's what C.S. Lewis called this, the true myth. Because it is the fact and the truth to which all great myths point. You think about it. How often have we heard this story? In myth form, it's Lord of the Rings. It's Harry Potter. Where did the story come from? It comes from this story. It comes from the story of a God who enters into our broken world heroically and who gives his son to sacrifice himself, to destroy the devil and cover you, your guilt and your shame. Don't you see that? For those of you who are believers who are covered by this great covering in Christ, you and I both know that we live with shame. And you know how much of your life is directed and empowered by that shame. You do know that. I know that. There isn't a day I wake up when I'm not battling shame. There's not one single day it is there and it's there all the time but but what would it mean friends what would it mean for god's covering to actually engage our shame and i mean our deepest shame that place where we think to ourselves surely nobody would ever want to go nobody would want to go there god does Think of that visual theology, God entering the garden, God sacrificing that animal to cover. Listen, God has come to cover you. What can that mean in terms of the shame that you're feeling inside of you? Listen, you're loved, you're accepted, you're valued in Christ. You can come out. You can come to him with your deepest shame. And you can let the cross, you can let that 
covering intersect right there in that place and begin to heal you and free you. You see. It's going to take time. It's not going to happen overnight. And it's going to take community. It will. I had a a friend come to me a little while ago. doesn't go to this church. And he said to me, I've been living a lie. And I've been holding on to a secret in my marriage. And, uh, I just feel that God is saying to me, I've got to come clean. I've got to come out. And he came to me and he just, he confessed and he told me about it. And I was just like, wow, man, I'm just watching the spirit of God at work. You know, moving a man from slavery and shame to freedom and joy. And man, the change that has overcome this man and his marriage, man, you just can't even believe it. And we spend so much of our time hiding in the shadows of shame. Why, man? We, we have been saved by Christ. We've been covered by him. Surely we can come out and say, listen, this doesn't define me. Christ does. And we can say, here it is. I want to talk about it. Will you listen? Will you pray? Will you walk beside me? Hey, listen, our small groups this year have got to be that way. They've got to be that way. They've got to be safe places where people can say, listen, here's where I'm doing great, but here's where I'm really struggling and I am battling shame. Would you pray the gospel into my heart? Cause I want to be free. Can we have those kinds of communities? He wants you to be free. He doesn't want you to be enslaved. This is why he came. To just release the shackles of shame and get you on your feet, praising him and worshiping him and living the life he's always wanted you to live and that you can and will in Christ. Okay? Amen. Let me pray. Father in heaven, what a story. What what a truth. Thank you, Lord, for helping us to understand, for helping us to understand why we are the way we are, but also just how we can be recovered. And I want, Father, for everyone in this room to know both. I want the father to know why they behave the way they do. And I want them to know the power that shame has over them. Or so it seems. And I want father for the gospel and its power to so dominate their hearts and so redefine who they actually are. That it would just set them free whether for the first time or for the thousandth. I just pray this, Father. Thank you for Christ covering in Jesus' name. Amen.